0: how's it going?
1: Good, good. I'm super excited to chat, Omar. You and I were talking about how we are like social media friends, but this is our first time being like anything more than that and talking with voice. We're friends on TikTok and Instagram. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I was pretty much like, oh, an adult on TikTok? Yeah, follow. We're we're friends.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? The the first couple of months was kind of scary because I I, I think we were the only adults on that entire platform. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, we need to keep an eye on the kids. And then furthermore, obviously, the real reason, I was like, whoa, this guy's name is Omar, and he started a tech company. And I that seems familiar. There's not very many of us in this world.
0: No, not at all, by any means. Awesome.
1: So, Omar, how would you introduce yourself?
0: Oh, that's a... I don't think I've ever have ever been asked that. Uh, yeah, I, I guess, you know, because when, when you ask the questions, a bit of a loaded questions because you sort of have to you know define yourself in some ways. Uh, husband, father, entrepreneur.
1: Fair enough. And cool. I know at least one of your ventures was ties.com. Are there other ventures as well?
0: I mean, nothing really uh, public. I um, do some angel investing when you're in this space. It just sort of comes naturally when you start networking. Um, obviously real estate, but what's public really is sort of Ties.com and then the platform that, you know, sort of like runs the entire apparatus on the background, as you mentioned, the uh, technology behind it, um, which is, you know, technically why I'm in the tech space instead of in the clothing space, but both. Um, so, yeah, I, I, is that is that a good uh, definition? You know, by the way, I, I should have like prefaced all of this. Uh, so... You are my very first podcast since like it's been like two years. I've been on a, a social media slash podcast blogging sort of like hiatus I've just sort of like laid low in the last two years for a good reason but I...
1: you chose the right one. I'll tell you. <laughs> this, is, this is the right place to start so I am honored.
0: Yeah well, I'm excited. <laughs>
1: and I actually, so ties.com is a really big deal. I, I know about ties.com because I'm married and we actually bought my husband and all his grooms, groomsmen's ties on ties.com. You should know. Oh, I think we awesome. got him a bow tie and everybody else ties or there was some sort of a mix, but all, mm. all the same fabric. But, uh, so, so let's talk about that. Like where were you born? Where were you raised?
0: Yeah. Um, so originally I was born in Afghanistan and, uh, you know, with everything that's going on in the events. Afghanistan has, uh, has had, what, 45 years of sort of like sustained war. So I was born there in the early 80s. And then my parents uh, left during the second brain brain drain out of Afghanistan. You know, typical refugee story. Uh, we became refugees uh, for a couple of years, bounced around. We were in, in India first. And then my parents sought asylum uh, in the Netherlands. My dad has a PhD. In agriculture, and my mom has a master's in banking, or rather in business, and so we ended up in the Netherlands and stayed there, or here rather, um, for a number of years. Um, and then my parents decided to move to the states. I think when I was like ten or eleven years old. And then uh, so Los Angeles has been home for the last twenty some odd years 25, 26 years.
1: I didn't realize that you were Afghan and came, you know got here as a refugee. And I'm sorry, like just what's happening there right now is really devastating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The Afghan diaspora is, is, it's an interesting one. I don't think I've ever been anywhere in the world where I have not come across Afghans. And I am, you know, I, I don't necessarily seek the Afghan community. And it's not by design or by any sort of like, just sort of like inherently sort of how it happens. But uh, nevertheless, um, you know, we were in New and in switzerland and sort of in this like very remote village and this is a couple of years ago we were just sort of like walking it was like the middle of the night or something and we could hear these like i, I want to say they were like sort of like older teenagers or something talking and i wasn't trying to eavesdrop, but they were talking farsi and i was like oh my god and sort of in in, in the you know afghani dialect now so i knew for sure they were from afghanistan i was like my god how far you know like how long have the Afghan sort of like community, how long have they sort of like fled Afghanistan to, for them to be in this like sort of like really, you know, obscure village in Switzerland. So, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting uh, country for sure.
1: I, I know the exact sentiment because actually Iraq, like I'm Iraqi, right? And Iraqi physicians and dentists were offered visas in many like Scandinavian countries in, in literally middle of nowhere villages in return, especially as the war was bad, in return for services. So it was like, hey, a random doctor from Baghdad, like, come to this random town in Norway, in the middle of nowhere, and we will give you a visa and a life and you'll kind of be the, the town dentist. So there, it's a very similar relationship with the Iraqi diaspora. And, and likewise, there is a big kind of issue with Afghani translators, 70,000 or so of them that were promised visas and yeah. By the United States that they're waiting on, right? And and so they're being targeted by Taliban. And actually, Iraq had a very similar um, epidemic and, yeah. and we're, you know, working through that as well. So the diaspora in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think there's quite a quite a few similarities um in, in the sad ways, but also in the positive ways. I love Afghanis. I feel like they're also they have very strong personalities, not unlike Iraqis.
0: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's very true, yes. Yes. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And so so that that's cool. And you move here. And did you grow up in California?
0: Yeah, so um, Southern California, to be exact, in, in the South Bay area, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach area.
1: Oh, that's not too far. Yeah, I, I was um, born and raised in the greater LA too. And uh, how did you go from there, like as an immigrant who kind of had lived in a handful of places, Like, what's the journey between that and and starting a company, probably one of the most famous Thai companies or men's garment companies in the industry?
0: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you come from that culture. Entrepreneurship is just nothing that like our people do, right? There's that sort of like four staples, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, and professor, you know, sort of like higher education is the only respectable sort of like thing that you do. And so I was on that journey. My brother, in fact, became a doctor. And so I was in, I actually dropped out of college. I should, you know, I should mention that I dropped out of college without telling my parents uh, to pursue my first business. And that was with my uncle and, you know, sort of like successful in some ways. And then I had to sort of like come clean to my parents while this journey was going on with the the first business. And so when I exited, I was, um, I went back to school and my, I had full intentions to go to law school, you know, and I knew very early on that I was never going to become a doctor. I didn't have the aptitude for it or, nor the stomach. Um, so, or at least that's what I told myself. Um, but nevertheless, I just didn't do it. And so, um, and I knew like soft sciences, which is something I excelled at. So, um, you know, I had full intentions of going over there. And I had this like one sort of like this gap year between undergrad and grad school. And I was like, oh, you know, like I'll go to, and so I graduated from LMU and I went to the grad school um, program, and I was like, "Oh, I'm just kind of curious to see what, like what they had." And so they had all these like two year programs, which obviously wasn't going to work for me because I was going to go to law school the following year. And this is like 2008, 2009, when you know the market had sort of like crashed, and you know there wasn't like many opportunities anyway. So so I go to this like symposium uh, that they're doing on all these like grad programs, and LMU had just launched this new program, this new grad grad school program and they had a a program called bioethics and I was like oh this is pretty interesting because you know I heard I heard one of the speakers and they were like oh yeah you know there's like a law function in it. and I was like oh this is pretty interesting let me see if I could you know like if I could squeeze this into a one-year program and so I end up speaking to the chair and he was like you know we can probably make something work if you really want to do the program we can do you know we'll let you squeeze it into one year I need to take a look at your grades and transcripts Yada, yada, yada. And so anyway, so I I squeezed a two year program into into a one year and got my um, uh, got a master's in bioethics. And then I got into law school, and I realized I just did not want to do it. I had no passion for it. And there's like a sort of a longer story to as to why I didn't want to do it. It's an interesting story to me, but you know, we don't have to get into it. But nevertheless, um, I just decided I didn't want to do it. And so now we're talking about 2009, end of sort of like middle of 2009. Early 2010, um, and I had a consulting company. So I had this point; I had exited two companies, and I was consulting. And I ran into who are now my business partners, uh, Morgan and David, um, and they had started e-commerce company that had in-house developed sort of like code, and um, and I was like really interested in it because you know like e-commerce was sort of like my background, and I thought they were doing clever stuff, but I knew there was a lot of room for improvement, obviously. And I was like, um, so they invited me in to come in after they had heard that I had a consulting company. They invited me to come in and sort of like, you know, help them get some bigger ideas down. And we ended up talking, um, I think it was an, over an afternoon, it was a couple of hours. And they, um, um, I go back home. And, you know, I think I think like a couple of, couple of weeks later, they like randomly reached out and they're like, hey, we want you to come in and They actually offered me a job as like a C-level executive. And it was an interesting offer. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I'll roll the dice. And so that's how sort of like I got my foot into into Tice.com as a company. And then once I came on board and we're now talking about, boy, nearly 12, 13 years, we sort of like pivoted really, really hard from where we were. So, you know, at this point, we're talking about, you know, sort of when I joined the company was back in 2010. And the company was just coming sort of like out of the recession or rather the economy was coming out of the recession, but the company had really suffered. They had really been caught flat-footed. There wasn't just a lot of innovation and the team was really, really um, sort of like bloated on many levels. There was just all this weird hierarchy, interesting culture. um, And I don't want to say good or bad. It was just an interesting culture. Um, So when I came on board, you know, we just had to like, pivot really, really hard. The company was like hemorrhaging a ton of cash. My then business partner, Morgan, was just, you know, dumping a bunch of money into it to keep the company afloat. And there's like all this like weird resentment, I, you know, like you're, you're an older millennial like I am. So you remember like what that time frame was like, you know, it was just a lot of like nervous. The market itself was nervous. You know, the economy was nervous. Um, people were just, you know, it was just like a weird time, I want to say for a lot of like newly grads. Um so it was it was tough it was um it was really tough so when I came on board, we just needed to make some really really hard decisions to pivot the company and so we sort of like made made those decisions and like moved on from them and so technically, me being a co-founder on the mass head really stems from this idea of like you know really pivoting the company, focusing on our technology, focusing on our sort of like supply chain, focusing on different areas of the business itself, and then sort of like really coming out of it and so we you know, are now known as ties.com. But back, you know, 2010, we had like five different brands. They're all competing against each other. We're just like cannibalizing sales, cannibalizing even like search results in in Google. So there was just like all this like weird stuff that was happening. So yeah, I I don't know if I really answered the question. But that was sort of like my journey from coming in as an immigrant um, from from Holland to uh, the US and then joining ties.com
1: yeah no that that's super interesting because it seems like you were involved in a bit of like almost a reorg almost like private equities for an extent right where you came in and you saw the company and you had the job of working with your co-founders to clean it up and turn it into um, a very valuable company is that right
0: yeah i mean that's a that's a probably like a good um assessment of it i treated this the the first couple of months really as a consultant i mean you know just coming in a cleaning house b sort of like understanding what the company's mission was and then you know sort of like aligning our goals towards it redefining what the company really has meant I mean you know like you run your own company you realize you set these goals for yourself you know and then you hit some milestone you sort of like uncover something that you know strengths that the company may have or may not have and you know projects go abandoned and so I, I'm not here to say that like whatever vision we had set back in 2010 that has come to fruition now because I was able to foresee all, foresee it all but you know like Ultimately, you know, we needed to pick, make some really, really tough decisions and, you know, sort of like build on those uh, on those decisions. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a good, asses- it's a good assessment to say, came in as, as like an outsider, a private equity consultant, whatever, and then redefined it to what it is today.
1: What are some of the successful lessons that you learn? And in hindsight, what do you wish you knew then?
0: Um, so I came in and I think it was like, so, you know, I graduated a little bit older than everyone else since I took a few years off. By the time I had joined the company, I was 26, 27 years old. Uh, it was, it was really nervous, you know, since you were asking how, how it felt. There's a lot of like nerve wracking sort of decisions I had to make. And then I had to live with those decisions. Um, and so imagine going home at like 26 years old. with sort of like the weight of, you know, what I perceived then, um, the weight of like the world on my shoulders because we had people in the company who had mortgages, you know, putting kids through college and and you know car payments and all this stuff. And I'm making decisions for these people that um, and for these people that could sort of like either end their career or end their tenureship at the company. But in terms of lessons, I think I, I wish I had let some people go sooner and faster. Um, and I think people just ultimately really define your company and you know the growth of your company really becomes dependent on the type of players you have on your team. So I, I think that's lesson number one is how well you your people understand your mission and how well they're willing to, you know, sort of like help on, on that mission. And, you know, sort of like we've gone through a lot of cultural iterations both as a company, but also sort of like as a society and especially in the tech space, right? I think 10, 12 years ago, the landscape and the work environment was completely different. And now that sort of like tech work culture is really, really toxic or considered toxic. But back then, you know, working 60, 70, 80 hours, that was sort of like a badge of honor. If, if you watch sort of like any movie that's movies that's made about like, or shows that are documentaries that are about the tech tech space, you understand that that culture. So that in itself has shifted. But nevertheless, I think the idea of, of, of having eight players on your team really can affect the trajectory and sort of velocity of, of, of your growth. Um, so I think people are really important. I think that's a lesson that I learned. Uh, I, I want to say I learned it both like early on, but maybe didn't act on it as early as I should have. I think it took me a few years to sort of like come into my own and be like, and, and make those like tougher decisions. Um, so I wish I had done those um, a little bit A little bit sooner. And then um, I think like one of the other things that that really stands out to me sort of like reflecting back on it is that I've always had a lot of conviction. Um, And so, you know, earlier we were saying that Afghans and Iraqis have a lot of like strong personalities. And so, but I think that's also this like discourse that we engage in this hegemonic discourse that I think is like maybe negative about our people. And so I've always sort of like shied away from leaning into it. But in a lot of ways, as an entrepreneur, you sort of have to have these convictions and sort of like lean into them. And so for us early on, it was really leaning into SEO. Um, And I remember the marketing team had a lot of like problems with this, and they just didn't understand SEO. And they were just like, Oh, no, we don't want to do it. And I allowed them to push me back for like six to eight months. And then I was like, No, that's it. And we really leaned into it. I had to let go about half of the staff um, when we made that decision, because people just weren't on board. Um, and I remember they would go to my business partner and be like, oh, my God, this kid's going to throw this company away. We've built you know, this company over the years and where you're throwing your money away. And so into and, and my business partner's credit, who was you know, 10, 12 years my senior, he would just look at them and be like, look, we've made the decision. He's on the team now. So if he says that's what we're going to do, that's what we're going to do. He's, the, the, he's an executive in the company. And so we're going to follow that lead. Um, so to his credit, he sort of had my back um, even behind my behind closed doors. He had my back. So, but really leaning into those, um, those decisions and sort of like having those convictions and sort of pushing through, you know, really came to fruition for us. And the second time in a major way that came back for us is, is, is building out our sort of like infrastructure in terms of production to have a more vertic- vertically integrated company, um, which is something for our size, you know, we really shouldn't get into it. Like, you know, why would a company of our size even even do that? Um, But we leaned into it and those relationships and those ventures that we set up overseas have really done well for us because it has helped us through sort of like the ups and downs of of the market. It has allowed us to remain a competitive um, company in the space. You know, and one of the things that's interesting about that specific strategy for, you know, doing our own production overseas is that we couldn't have been competitive. We really couldn't have been because if you look at, you know, sort of, bigger companies. And, you know, I want to clarify this for anybody who's listening right now for your audience, you know, Tice.com is a very small company. Um, we look act and behave like a really big company, but we're a really small sort of like regional company. We've never taken outside funding. So, you know, the, the company is really sort of a growth a company growth has really been predicated on, you know, us dumping money back, back into the business. And so we've always been self-funded bootstrapped from the very beginning until now, Um, So our growth really had to depend on revenue growth. So, and it had to be sustainable, right? We didn't have, it wasn't like we had a till to go back to and and get sort of like funding when we ran out of money or if we had a, uh, if we didn't have a profitable year or profitable quarter or whatever. But the reason why leaning into vertically integrating the company um, allowed us to remain competitive was because you had companies like Bonobos who came into our space and all Bonobos had to do—I mean, they did 1.2. I remember this very vividly when they launched. They were a 1.2 million dollar company, and they ended up raising like 120 million dollars. Or I'm sorry, 100 million dollars. It was astronomical. You couldn't even believe that these guys were raising that kind of money. But the same thing with like Job, Modcloth, and and all these other companies that came into our space and was just—they were, you know, even our biggest competitor ended up like raising money. But what ends up happening is those. Companies that come into our space, um, all they have to do is literally go to the same factories that we go to and pay even a few cents more, ten cents, twenty cents more. To them, that's not a big deal because they have outside funding and you know their margins are completely different and their business model is different. They, you know, margin may even profit margin may not even be a thing for them. And, and that what that would mean for us is get our production would get pushed back. But us having our own sort of like manufacturing process in place and and partnership set up, it really allowed us to continue to stay in the space and not, you know, have our production, for instance, get affected. And then when you had sort of like economic ups and downs, our production wasn't affected because we owned the process. So, you know, it wasn't like we weren't going to get production done just because, you know, we were like missing a quarter or we were missing projections or whatever, or we didn't we were tight on cash flow, whatever it was. The production always kept going. So yeah, I I don't know if that answered your question, but I think I think um, early on, just understanding people and leaning into your decisions was really, really sort of like important for me.
1: Yeah, I didn't realize you guys were bootstrapped, and that's very, very, very impressive. And it's funny because when you mentioned how SEO was kind of going to be your focus, when I was an um, almost bride in like 2015, planning for a 2016 wedding or whatever. The first thing i did was google like wedding ties and you guys came up and i bought 20 wedding ties or whatever it was so like i, I think you were onto something because it's one of those websites i mean i'm sure you have repeat visitors maybe in men but i think like the brides are probably regular visitors who are just kind of trying to google the best and most effective way to just kind of fulfill their vision and often a cost effective way too
0: yeah. Um, so, I mean, inherently sort of like the necktie space, right? Um, or the accessory space isn't necessarily a repeatable business for the, for, for the most part, because when you buy neckties, especially sort of like now, you know, sort of like weddings, maybe funerals and, 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 and that's it. And so, yeah, a lot of our visitors for that specific target audience is a one-time customer. So, Getting them through a funnel that's easy and you know sort of like getting them to first come visit and then convert is is really important. But SEO is just something that we really needed to target. And the other thing is also that we just didn't have the funding to or or you know to be able to chase clients in the same way that you know our bigger competitors were. If you look at like again, I'm going to keep using Bonobos as an example, but Bonobos or Asus or you know Zara. Not only did do they have tremendous amounts of money to dump into sort of like paid campaigns, but they also have tons of PR and you know, all these other sort of like apparatus that, that at their disposal that we just didn't have the funding for. And the only thing that was for us that we could have been competitive at um, was SEO because for them it was all about viral growth and fast growth. If you for instance look at like Revolve right now or pretty little things or Shein or all these other companies that are in, in the clothing space, it's just about the virality of growth and they have the ability to s- sustain getting capturing a customer, for instance, at like, let's say $100 and then only getting that customer to spend $20, $30 because they know that that customer is going to come back time and time again, number one, but B, that the lifetime value of that customer is going to be higher for them because they are chasing, again, looking at their business model a very specific sort of like avenue right because they're either going to the public markets or they're looking for you know a private equity come buy them out so they're sort of like for them profitability or short-term profitability um, is not that important so we just didn't have that business model so it was really important for us to find what the least expensive way was for us to market that we could do in-house and sort of like reap the benefits of it long term but it had to be something that was a scalable but and B, have a lot of reward at the end. Um, and so we just sort of like gambled on my CEO.
1: That was probably the right thing to do, it turns out. And and it's it's kind of wild to hear about your CEO journey and how you came in and kind of changed things up. What I'm curious about is what kind of CEO were you? Were you like a product CEO? Were you a marketing CEO? Were you like a public person CEO? I heard you say something about the background, like the tech stack effectively that ran it all. And it seemed like maybe you took this from something that was not so digital to, and the strategy was to make it highly digital. So I'm, I'm wondering if those hints kind of will piece together my answer.
0: Yeah, no, it's like, I, it's fantastic that you've picked it up because I, as a side note in terms of recruiting, cause I know you talk a lot about it, which is one of the reasons why I ended up following you on TikTok. Cause I think you and I have a lot of uh, similar thoughts when it comes to recruiting I often tell people, especially people who run departments or, you know, sort of like a C, either C-level, director level at a department, I tell them, you are the CEO of that position. And if we have a department that doesn't necessarily have a C-level or a director level, and we have somebody who I believe has the capacity to run that department, this is exactly what I tell them. I say, look, you have every sort of, and, you know, of course they have to have all the other parameters of, of somebody who makes That sort of like leader in the company. But I always tell that whoever that person is, I always tell them, you have the capacity to sit in my seat and be the CEO of the company. In fact, that's what I want you to be gunning for. And every CEO is informed by some sort of uh, school of thought when when they become a CEO. And so to answer your question for me was marketing. I'm definitely a marketing um, CEO. And I will say this to the dismay of my team, because they believe I give marketing way too much attention and that marketing gets way too much of our funding and you know they have a way bigger budget than any other department but that's probably why because I don't like to ever admit this but you know because I that's the one thing that I really really understand well uh, more than anything else but I think that's also true for somebody who wants to become like for instance let's say a creative director right every creative director doesn't necessarily know all of things that everyone does within their department, whether it's photography or graphic design or graphic arts or film or whatever, whatever in the purview of of that a creative director is within a company. Uh, Most creative directors, if not probably uh, almost all of them don't know all of the, you know, sort of like disciplines that they are overseeing, but they sure know one thing very, very well, maybe two things very, very well. You know, and maybe that's how they became a creative director was because they were let's say really, really good at graphic art and you know, um, somehow they got an opportunity to become a creative director. Same thing for somebody who becomes a chief marketing officer, right? And especially in the digital company, you know, you don't have to know everything there is to know about email marketing. You don't have to know everything there is to know about about paid campaigns or SEO or PR or business development, like all these other things have again fallen under the purview of a chief marketing officer, especially within a digital company. You have to know one or two things really, really well, like, because those things will help you inform the decisions that you make about sort of everything else, right? You know, either you come from somebody and, you know, sort of like expertise really is email and that's how you've become the chief marketing officer at whatever company. Um, So, yeah, to sort of answer your question in a very long-winded way for me, it was marketing.
1: You know that what you said really resonates because so I I, pract- I studied architecture. It's it's not even fair to say I practiced it because I did it so little, but I studied architecture and I actually find those skills playing a really big role in what I do today because effectively like the architect has the vision of what they oversee. And even though they work with the plumber, they work with H- HVAC, they work with the structural engineer you would not trust an architecture, an architect to write like structural plans, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is a professional who is trained and certified to do that. Same with HVAC, same with plumbing, you name it. But the architect is the one who kind of sews that vision together. And that analogy, I, I find it being true time and time and time again, throughout this startup journey. Um, and, and I think what you described kind of falls into that analogy as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you graduated the degree in architecture, just out of curiosity, what made you Want to get into business? Um, I think I followed one of your TikToks where you had talked about the business you had started while you were in college. Um, is that is that how you ended up just staying in business? Is that why?
1: Yeah, effectively, I wanted to be an architect because I wanted to do development in post-conflict zones like Baghdad. I studied architecture twice, not once, because I thought I was so committed. And I got my dream job super early. I thought I was going to get it in ten years. I got it. The year that i kind of manifested it or prayed for it or whatever and it was mm-hmm. at the un and and i hated it because i was not impactful i was very expensive to move and i was no smarter than locals and that same year i actually took a class called development ventures where we were told to change a billion lives of technology and i never really endeavored with technology like i had an internship that was kind of technical architecture school is actually highly technical but in another way but mm-hmm. not like software And I met the three guys who are now my co founders, we were like researchers back then. And we started working on this idea. And immediately I realized how creative and how impactful it was. And I just had this huge uh aha that I care more about creativity and impact than I do necessarily the built environment. So even though I love architecture, I if I can go back, I would not study anything else. I think it's such a valuable degree. And honestly, they teach you to be so self-aware and self-critical, but also hardworking throughout that program that it was, I couldn't have studied anything that was a better fit, but I, I will never be an architect.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I, I get it.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so And so as this journey kind of progresses and you, you start, what was the first moment, Omar, that you were like this is working. Like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm doing. I've had two exits, but like they made me CEO because they really wanted me to fix it. And like, this is working. What was that moment for you?
0: That is a really, so I've had those, like, I don't know if I've ever really truly have had it in that. I think when you're an entrepreneur, there's always like doubt, right? There's always, and, and you know, you also have this like imposter syndrome, there's always the self doubt, there's the imposter syndrome. And then there's all also this like comparative success of everyone else around you. So I don't know if I've ever really truly have had that I've had, I, I don't want to sound very depressing about this whole thing. But I've certainly have had sort of like moments where we've hit milestones where I was like, I, you know, boy, I think we're on the right track. It's sort of like varied experiences, for instance, when we first launched when we first did our re- first real hard pivot into um, letting go some of um, our legacy and older sort of like properties, that was like one of those things where we're like okay, well, I think we're on the right track, and you know you sort of like saw the immediate revenue boost. You're like okay, I think I think we you know we got you know we're grabbing this dog by the scuff of its neck. That was one moment, um, and I think that was maybe year two when when we had gotten there. Year four when we had made our first acquisition, um, and I was like oh man, I think you know what we're doing. This is this is, this is good. But I, again, so throughout, you know, the last 12 years, we've had these little moments of aha, but there's always a new challenge that comes that sort of like shakes your core and you're like, oh shit, I don't know what I'm doing. Am I really like, you know, do I really have it in me to be able to do this? Um, and like I said, I think that has a lot to do with comparative success, you know, and the sort of like performative nature of how Instagram entrepreneurs are. Um, and I think it's just sort of like human nature to compare yourself to those to to, to what's happening on the outside world. The shakiness of the sort of like economy, macroeconomy itself, the appetite for sort of like your industry. So, you know, you're 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 in tech. So maybe it's not the same as as being uh, specifically in in sort of like retail. Retail has been around um, for a very, very long time in sort of like Silicon Valley, you know, it was one of the sort of like earliest companies that you know silicon valley or industries that silicon valley was investing in um, outside of technology was sort of like retail but it's no longer the darling of, of silicon valley so you know the the money comes and goes in, in the space and then when it does come back in and you have all of these like you know sort of like new york finance people who who just like jump into it um, bonobos is a really good example of that andy dunn was a finance guy you know who decided that he wanted to do this um all birds you know finance people There's there's MM Lafleur finance people all these people who just are in the finance space and then they you know sort of like pull toggles and they know the right people Um, and I I read this quote somewhere it said um, you know the biggest difference the biggest differentiator between a successful company and a not successful company is um, access to funding and I couldn't agree with that more to a certain extent you know so uh, it's hard to really define and say you know we really had this like epiphany where we said, aha, this is, this, we, we finally made it. I don't know if you've ever watched um, a show on, I think it's on Netflix, but it was originally on AMC. It's called Halt and Catch Fire. Um, it's a really great show. And, you know, if you can squeeze it into your your life, you should maybe your episode here and there. But that's really sort of like the journey of, of like us in in the world of entrepreneurship, because, you know, minus the backstabbing, right? I love my business partners. We've been business partners for a long time. But that, you know, that sort of like uncertainty of of what's happening around the next corner, A keeps you sharp, B keeps you keeps me entertained. And, you know, I, I'm a sucker for it. And i like to live by the seat of my pants. But you know, sort of like, the common denominator is always, you know, that uncertainty, like sort of, um, is always there. And you, you never allow yourself to, to, to ever really reap the rewards of like being joyous at any sort of like milestone you really reach. And uh, so yeah, I I don't think I've ever had had that aha moment where I've said you know we've turned a corner we've, we're we're a success now.
1: You know it's funny that you talk about kind of the changing landscape and staying on your toes because as I was like at some point in this interview I was thinking about over twelve years the two spaces that you've played in one is technology the other is like retail specifically accessories right mm-hmm. and so within technology twelve years ago. I remember everybody thinking they were just going to start a photo sharing app and walk out with like $5 million or even better, become a unicorn. And people really thought they could just have a startup on the side, they'd get it developed offshore, never needed to maintain the app, they'd pay somebody like $1,200 on Odesk or something, and it would be an instant success. And that obviously shifted to technology, like you said, just being this darling where you wanted to work and get free robots who are giving you, you know, drinks and gumballs all day. And then it became kind of a toxic space. So that's evolved. But then also retail and this part of retail urine specifically, like I'm not a dude, but I know fashion changes. And I know, especially in the last two years, people are not leaving home, let alone wearing accessories. So it seems like I know about the, the challenges in technology and being able to navigate those, but you've even had challenges within your industry and probably had to figure out how to navigate sales and how to navigate strategy around people's evolving styles, which tend to be cyclical, so you can fall back on that. But certainly I'm sure that there, you know, the pandemic did bring grief. I'm sure there were moments that did bring grief.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've hit that nail right on its head. You know, when we when we were sort of um, you know, the giant in the accessory space. One of the reasons was, was we were a gatekeeper in, in that, you know, we had, um, so one of my uh, co-founders is a through and through technologist, you know, he's an, he's an engineer, he is an agnostic developer with a very large array of, of skills, probably one of the best developers in the country. And I say that not being shy um, about it well known in the in, in the space and well known in the the sort of like technology space brilliant but that was our sort of like advantage for the longest time and then uh, Shopify came about and you're like oh that's interesting but the unintended consequences or maybe intended consequences of that was um, it gave access to a lot of people to uh, be able to launch overnight um, and then you had uh, the rise of sort of like the China economy and, um, them expanding abroad. And so then you had, um, Alibaba, Aliexpress, um, you had a slew of all these sort of like, not just access to information, but you had access to technology that made everything readily available. So all of a sudden you had these kids out of no disrespect, but sitting in their underwear, um, you know, making a couple of grand a month, um, just sort of like reselling or, 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 or drop (laughs) shipping. Um, so then you had all of these sort of like contenders. And so yeah, it's it, it it. there's like I said, there's always, you know, like whenever you feel like, okay, like, I, I think I got this, I think, you know, like, we're rolling down this hill. And I, I think I'm controlling this cart, the, the wheels are not falling off, you know, it's a little shaky, but we got this. And then all of a sudden there's like, you know, you look in your rear mirror and there's like boulder, you know, that's coming down, you know, whether it's, uh, <laughs> uh, whether it's like Wix or, or Shopify or Amazon changing their strategy or whoever it is, you've, you have something that happens in your industry that you're like, oh man, this is, is this, is this the thing, is this the boulder that's going to like crush us? And, you know, and so over the years I've learned, we've learned that nothing is, there, there's always going to be some sort of a existential threat out there, you know, and again, whether it's macroeconomics, whether it's um, us going to war, whether it is us, you know, discontinuing our relationship with China, whatever it is, it's always this ex- existential threat out there. Um, you sort of have to operate within, you know, the parameters knowing that, you know, something may or may not happen. So, you know, you sort of keep keep on doing and then over the years, you just hope that you've carved yourself enough goodwill with your clients and goodwill with your customers and, you know, have enough good reputation out there to be able to, you know, sort of like survive whatever the next sort of hump is going to be.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really good way to put it. And are you currently involved with ties.com on a day to day?
0: Yeah, so we, you know, we had to go remote. I, um, I don't know how if you guys are coming back to the office, but we've decided to stay remote for, for the time being. Um, and so, uh, yeah, my day-to-day 9 to 5, 7 to seven to 12 is really ties.com. We have, so we launched, what we haven't really talked about is the sort of like technology platform that we have. But we launched a our software to the public, which is something that we've wanted to do for a very long time, um, but haven't um, had the bandwidth to do. But 2020, we just had a lot of downtime and we focused on making the technology sort of readily available to the public. Um, or at least our paying customers anyway. We devoted um, a lot of resources to it and we're probably weeks away where it's getting beta tested right now by, uh, it's getting beta tested right now by some clients, but probably in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be ready to, to launch it. So we, you know, sort of, uh, my nine to five is really that and, and sort of like doing bi- tons of business development and really be heavily, really heavily involved in sort of like the marketing side of it. But other than that, uh, yeah, like nothing else. Just really focusing on ties.
1: Yeah, I mean, as a fellow founder, that's that's how it works. <laughs> Typically, it's very hard to do anything else as a fellow founder and parent. Like your your cup is probably full and some. Yeah. So I, I know what that's like. Um. And what's your vision for the company?
0: <sighs> Man, that's a that's a really good question. So so ties.com, we have had probably a two year conversation about us pivoting the company and so it started it started off with you know ties has always been sort of like neckties for, for that matter but we really are working on sort of a rebrand and so we have this the broad strokes um done with with our rebrand um but the scent, effectively it's like this um so ties.com is this it, it's more than neckties right or at least to us it is anyway and i'm kind of actually curious to get your thoughts on it and so because in terms of like a, a public public place, this is probably the first time I'm having this conversation with anybody publicly anyway. So we've had this conversation with the board, obviously. We've had this conversation for a very long time internally, but this is the very first time I'm actually talking about it publicly on a podcast. So we want to pivotize.com into a broader spectrum. So we want to carry everything for the average sort of consumer that you know shops online for clothing. So the idea is ties.com is a site that ties your outfit together. And so ties is no longer about neckties, but rather about this idea of tying you to your culture, tying you to, you know, sort of like the things that make you the individual that you are. And so whether, whether you know, you're somebody who's getting married and, you know, that's that's who you are today and for the next couple of months or, you know, next couple of uh, next couple of years, whoever that is, that's who we want to be. We want to be part of like whatever journey you're on we want ties to be part of that journey. And so we started testing some new products that have done really, really well. In fact, uh, for instance, we launched socks. Um, and it's one of our fastest growing categories. What we learned from this is that we have a really loyal customer base. And so uh, we immediately following that launched shirts um, that have done really, really well and to sort of like you know, even, even, even with this pivot, and I'm sure you have this, you know, you have executives in your company who sort of like kicking and scream, and, you know, and don't want to do it because, you know, and, and rightly so. A lot of people have fears about what the new identity may represent or may not be in your wheelhouse or, you know, whatever their sort of objections is. And we certainly had that internally, but it's panned out really, really well. You know, um, shirts is um, another sort of like category. So we've introduced th- three types of shirts. Um, in two different fits so we've introduced a dress shirt a casual shirt and then sort of an in-between shirt that you can both wear in the office but you know sort of like from the office could go to let's say uh, a bar or, or a restaurant or a nightclub um, and there'd be a sort of like a seamless uh, transition without you having to change your shirt um, and again both these shirts come in two different fits a slim fit and, and a regular fit and of course in all the different sizes Um, And so we introduced this, and for us that was really our first sort of like experiment into the the sort of like space where you had where sizing really mattered. And you know again it it's not a big deal when you look at a company like bigger companies who've you know sort of introducing products all the time. But for us as a small company, those a a huge investment, but b also a a lot of resources went into sort of developing the product itself. But nevertheless, it's done really well for us, and it's uh, again one of our sort of like faster growing products. It's not as fast as socks, but, you know, it, in, in a very um, competitive space, um, in a very, very highly saturated space, we were very surprised by how well it's doing. Um, and again, I think that's a testament to the sort of loyalty we've built over the years and the reputation we have with our customers. But I think also it speaks a little bit about like our product development team who went through sort of painstakingly went through finding you know sort of discovering the right pattern and going through iterations of product it took us eight, took us eight months to really develop the shirt um, It turned out really really well and we're really happy with it so yeah it's a, it's been a really interesting journey with with reinventing the company and and launching it into um, what it is going to be so the vision is really to broaden Ty's horizon and focus less on obviously as on, on accessories but more on the, the entire outfit.
1: Yeah. And I'm perusing your website as you're talking. And I love the way you've actually segmented kind of the, the I love the user journey that you've provided. Like when I click on socks, I can shop by color, or style or pattern or theme, but you didn't do it in like a weird filtery way. I literally kind of as somebody who would most likely shop by style, I was attracted to it and navigated that very quickly, whereas I could see my husband shopping by color, for example. And so like, it was just that or shopping by pattern. So I think it's really interesting how you just have like user, you have the user journey embedded into each segment.
0: So, you know, you're, you're tapping into something that's, um, that we found looking into data is that most, most of our, um, shoppers who are female really shop by browsing. And I also noticed that with my wife, when she's shopping, she's just browsing through images Um, because she's looking for outfits and she's looking for ideas, where are most of our male shoppers, they search for specific products or they search Mm -hmm. by color or an event. So, um, you know, like just digging into data, most men will, for instance, search for things like blue necktie or, uh, you know, black silk tie or something like that or, you know, some American flag socks or something like that, where it's it, behaviorally, it's completely different when it comes to women. Women are absolute sort of like, for the most part, anyway, I'm not speaking for all women, at least for our shoppers and our demographic and, you know, the data that we have. Most women are just sort of browsers, and they just want to browse through images. And then they, whatever sort of, image that they see that will fit the outfit that they have in mind, then they shop where men are really specifically looking for one thing. There's not a lot of imagination in that, you know, somebody's either they've been told like, Hey, you need to buy a blue tie or, you know, sort of like whatever, or they know like, you know, they're going to be a groomsman and they were told to buy a, this specific product. <laughs> they really come in search and then that's it. That's There's not a lot of browsing that happens, which is funny because I'm a browser. I love to browse <laughs> All the time, and so I hate it. I, I hate the fact that we don't have that feature, at least to a greater extent, the way bigger companies do. So, uh, yeah, that's an interesting insight that you picked up on.
1: Yeah, it's funny. If my husband were here, he'd just click on socks, click on novelty, and just be like, "Oh, shark socks, buy!" Like that would be the whole journey. <laughs> like literally, would be know, like, "What are the loudest, most just loud and ridiculous socks that are just the funniest?" Okay, Wait, is, is he
0: is he an attorney?
1: He's not an attorney. He's in finance. He's a, he's a uh, financial advisor. Okay. So like that's where his personality really comes out at work is his feet.
0: Got
1: it. <laughs> that's all, all they can afford out there in the corporate world.
0: Makes sense.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, you know, um, I know I promised, even though I can ask you a million questions about this journey, I promised only taking an hour so for, for those who are curious to follow the journey and follow how the brand develops and follow you, where are the best places to find you?
0: Honestly, so I Instagram, on Instagram, it's just my first name, last name, Omar Saeed. Um, or you can follow ties.com on Instagram or TikTok. Same thing. Lately, I've been living on TikTok. In fact, some of my employees, when they can't get a hold of me, they'll DM me on TikTok. It's really embarrassing, but that's how they get a hold of me. <laughs> Um so uh yeah that's that's the best way to get a hold of me if you uh if you ever want to reach out to me and I you know I'm op- uh, I I love helping people so if anybody wants to reach out and ask questions I'm happy to do it.
1: Yeah you're pretty responsive. We became friends pretty instantly on the internet. We
0: totally That you're pretty responsive also. You're pretty responsive. Yeah I, I try so. to be.
1: Yeah. I really yeah. try to be. I feel like access is something that often minority communities benefit the most from. Mm-hmm. Um you know, as much as we all want to be mysterious or are too busy to kind of give time to others. It's remarkable how far just a very candid conversation about direction or um, an introduction to an internship, how far it'll take somebody. So I I really try to be, even if I don't have the time, I really try to be.
0: Yeah. You know, you know, it's interesting that you just said that because I, you know, since I follow you on TikTok and stuff, I've, I've had this idea that maybe, and I don't know if this is going to be on brand for your podcast or not, but maybe at some future point, and it doesn't have to be now, but if your schedule allows, maybe at some point we can have a conversation about sort of like minority access, specifically sort of like Muslim access to sort of Silicon Valley, to money, to um, funding, um, because that's really an interesting topic. In fact, one of my college professors that I, still keep in contact with she social sciences again we talk a lot about this sort of like this you know invisible barrier that that there is and the sort of exists in the business world when it comes to sort of like us having access to to funding and it primarily stems and i don't think it's necessarily good or bad but i think it primarily stems for from lack of um, access to social capital and so you know you you probably had like many sort of like the diaspora that's out in the western world you know most of us come from sort of you know um, educated families and um, they lose all of that capital they lose all of that social capital when they come you know uh, my dad ended up becoming uh, or retiring as a vice president of his company but he started as a um, a skycap and and he was like a security guard you know he had all these like odd jobs until you know he learn the language, learn the ropes and, you know, sort of kind of put him. and he's, my dad's not an entrepreneur either, you know so for him to become a vice president of a company meant he had to work really, really hard to get to where he got and it wasn't until much later in his career until he was able to sort of like enjoy the accolades Uh, but for the most part, you know, like my dad worked very, very hard and he was never able to sort of like give me the, um, give me or my brother for that matter any sort of access to, you know, and I think about like, you know, our children, you know, your children, and fast forward 10, 20, 10, 12, 15 years, you know, they want to go to universities, or they want to go whatever we have built all of this sort of, um, sorry, all of this access, you know, I can pick up a, a phone right now. And I can talk to a friend of mine who's building literally is facing nearly a billion dollar um, exit at this company, you know, and, or I can pick up the phone, and I can get, you know, the vice president of Wells Fargo on the phone, or I can pick up the phone and, you know, call uh, the provost at LMU. This is the access that I have built, but I didn't have that, and so, uh, and there's a lot more people who are this uh, from the forever minority groups. You know, these people who are constantly coming into the country, um, into the Western world, and have no access. And and that's an interesting conversation to have because there's also this other side of it, right? Because it's almost you know this like duty and obligation that we have to be to to provide those opportunities for. The, the generation that's coming into our industry, that's the generation that's coming up. So and at, at least that's the way I feel whenever I get a DM specifically from somebody that, you know, um, I feel like I could help out that, you know, I at least make um, a concerted effort to see whether or not I have the capacity to help them and, and be there for them. But I think, I think that, I, I think you and I would have a, a really interesting conversation if, if, if um, we ended up talking about that topic.
1: I would do that in a heartbeat. It's something I am very passionate about. And actually, I mean, like, I, so we did the whole venture thing. We've raised a a lot of money. And honestly, when I first went to venture meetings, not because the investor said anything, I would like put a hat on instead of my hijab and try to like fool them, you know? Mm. And now I, it's funny, like, at this point, like, no, we're in too deep. Nobody cares about who I am, only our metrics matter. And, Actually, one of our more recent investors was like, I thought it was so cool. You wore hijab. I showed my daughters. We come from a Muslim background. That's obviously not why I invested in you, but it was definitely the cherry on top. Yeah. So kind of the journey. And, and, and I don't know any Muslim woman in hijab that is raised as much as we have. Like, I truly don't. And I'm not saying that like, an I'm the first, but like, a it's lonely out here, you know, and, and it will be lonely because there is a bit of a boys club element um, with, frankly, without my MIT degree, I don't know how it would have gotten the access to be very honest with you. And I wasn't alone. I had three other co-founders and we figured it all out together. But it's this very convoluted space. We we tapped into, like you said, our access points, got hard questions asked, worked our way into a lot of places and were finally able to do it. But the wall is sky high and and the know-how is very, very hidden. It's very kind of siloed in particular circles. <laughs>
0: absolutely absolutely it's it's definitely siloed um, and it's this sort of hidden secret because Silicon Valley Valley particularly hides behind this notion that you know we're very transparent and you know everything's transparent and transparent is very important but the truth is access to capital is still remains to be a very sort of secretive experience for a lot of people who want to who, who want to have access to it. And, you know, uh, of course, I, I'm going to ruffle feathers by saying this, but race matters, you know, and, and, you know, of course your product matters and, you know, your system matters and all this stuff matters, but, you know, come on, let's everybody be grown up and have a grown up conversation about, about this. If if you read any basic social science literature that comes from a, a decent university or a decent sort of like professor and, ab- about the topic of race and, and, and identity and, and all that stuff, it, it's, it's not uh, difficult to, to point out the sort of like discrepancies and, and um, lopsidedness of, of who gets access and who doesn't get access or who gets more access and who doesn't get more access. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, a, a numbers thing. The data itself proves it. So we're not saying anything that shouldn't be said or is interesting. But, you know, I've, I'm kind of curious like where that conversation goes because I, I think a lot of businesses, like I said, I think a lot of the businesses would be, more successful. And a lot of businesses would absolutely fail if it wasn't for capital um, and access to capital. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I I totally agree. And actually, like you said, the numbers prove it. I mean, first of all, I've said this on the podcast before. So for those of you hearing me rant about it twice, that's okay. It's worth hearing twice. There's this whole thing in BC where it's like, in the early stages, we don't invest in the product, we invest in the people. Because we only take in smart people and you're going to have so many challenges that we only want to invest in the best. But the numbers show that, like you said, one something percent of the capital goes to anybody black. Two percent of the pat capital goes to female founded teams and four percent of the capital goes to male and female founded teams. So that mm-hmm. means a whopping at least over 90 percent of the capital pretty much goes to men. And while we haven't necessarily said what type of men, I'd imagine there's some lopsided ethnicities or races that show up there. We we know it's not black men based on the numbers. Right. And so what does that narrative say? It says we trust a very specific a gender B type of person. So it's actually a bad narrative and it doesn't work in the advantage of VCs and they should drop it. They should fix their numbers, drop it and hide that until they fix it.
0: Yeah. And for anybody who's listening to this and is (laughs) saying, well, you know, there's more there's more white males that are in business. We're also talking about like percentages here. So it's not that uh, minorities don't apply for capital or don't have the need for capital is that they get less of it. So, but yeah, I I'd love to have have those conversations and not just access to capital, just, you know, again, social capital is another one, right. And, you know, not having access. And that's Honestly, it's no one's fault. And I'll be the first one to say it's not like some kid that I grew up with in Manhattan Beach just because his dad happens to be a VC or happens to work at as a VP somewhere just because it's not that kid's fault. And it certainly isn't my fault that I don't have access to that capital. But that discrepancy still exists because there is that disadvantage there. Um, and, and I think it should be, even if it can't be helped, it should at least be recognized um, and, and talked a little bit more about and it should be at the forefront of conversations, especially for entrepreneurs who have that recognition. And I think, you know, early on, you had asked a question that I didn't, um, that I just came to me that I didn't answer fully. You said, what was one of the challenges? I think one of the challenges I had was that I had this blind notion that this narrative that, you know, Silicon Valley was pumping about transparency and, you know, all you have to do is work hard and, you know, this sort of like things will happen to you took me a very long time that to sort of like recognize that's not necessarily true because I felt like I wrote really great blog posts. I felt like I contributed. I felt like I spoke at the right events. I felt like I did all that stuff and I just wasn't getting the the sort of like notoriety for it. And then later I realized, like a dummy, I realized, oh, wait, you know, these people have PR. These people have, you know, people who do outreach for them. Oh, this makes a lot more sense. Oh, you know, this is like, you know, uh, uh, this company is backed by X VC, who they themselves have, you know, a, a PR apparatus, or they themselves have a name recognition, and so when they do something, when they invest in a company, that in itself brings the sort of like notoriety, or they have access to Gawker or whoever, whoever's writing at for TechCrunch or whoever it may be, then you sort of like peel the layers, and like I said, I think I think I know, but it was a little naive about it when I first got into entrepreneurship that. For the most part, that's how it works. And, you know, of course, we're not talking about outliers here, but for the most part, that's how it works. Um, And, you know, and like I said, I I think that's one of the things to answer that very first question you asked. um, I think that's one thing that I didn't really pay a lot of attention to is that, you know, that there is this like insidious side to entrepreneurship that I, you know, had, had naively not paid attention to.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think that you're definitely right about that. It also goes back to your central theme of access. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to and definitely will take you up on the follow up on kind of like, how to build a business, you know, how to raise money. Why raise money? yeah. Um, What does it even mean to raise money? Like, you know, how do you raise money safely? Like, there's a lot that goes into it. What do you not do when you raise money? Um, Which we learned a lot of things, you know, you don't tell which investor, what investors you're talking to early on, because they'll chat their show notes, their only job is to make sure at that stage, whether or not you're reliable, trustworthy, and can do something with their money and be a fiduciary, right? So you want to kind of own your own narrative, don't spread the don't crowdsource your narrative through investors, like own your narrative and present it one by one, all these things we kind of learned throughout the way. So I will take you up on it. I will also put your plugs in the show notes. I really thank you for joining me. I know that you are working elsewhere in the planet, so it's very late your time. But I'm really, really, really thankful we got to connect, Omar.
0: Same. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for having me. See ya. Talk to you soon.